Welcome everyone to the 38th Fireside Chat. Good morning Australia, good afternoon US, and good evening Germany, and all places in between. Um, we welcome a new member to our Fireside Chat, and that's Amber. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for being here. Um, today we'll start off with Mike Pinelli in Australia here at 5 o'clock in the morning or so. Mike, you could go ahead and ask your question, and also we'd like to hear about your new website, The Awakening Point. Uh, it's still a ways off. Donna, still around about three, four, maybe even five weeks off. Um, but I'll, I'll update all of you guys as soon as it's almost ready to go. Thank you. Hi, Tom. Um, I've got a question which is in kind of three parts. So really it's three questions. Um, would it be correct to think that as the entire LCS is evolving and not perfect, then even the big cheese has some sort of ego, thus fear, however minute? Yes, uh, I think that would, uh, would be reasonable. Uh, I think we should emphasize the however minute. Um, it turns out that the larger conscious system uh, had to go through a very similar process that, that we're going through now. Uh, it wasn't uh, created uh, as a being of love. It started uh, much as we have started, you know, full of fear, full of ego, and had to figure it out just like we're figuring it out. And it got its challenge when it created all those individuated units of consciousness to give it uh, more opportunities to grow. It created more potential in which it could grow into when it did that. But it also made a very big change in the larger conscious system's life, and that is before it was one singular free will. It made all the choices. It you know, didn't have any other uh, beings that it needed to uh, interact with. It was just itself, a monolithic thing. Then it made the individuated units of consciousness and gave them free will because without free will, they hadn't really, you know, wouldn't have accomplished anything, just been talking to himself again. So they uh, had to have free will. And suddenly he was in a social situation with other entities with free will, and he had to deal with that. So as he said, all right, class, you know, let's do this. And, of course, some of those IUOCs with free will said, nah, I don't feel like doing that now. I'm going to do something else, you see. So the larger conscious system then had to deal with his own creations with the free will. And initially, it would seem that he tried to deal with them with some uh, uh, coercion, with some browbeating, with some manipulation, and everything it tried ended up creating more trouble. Everything it tried, when, as it tried to control the situation and make it turn out the way it thought it should go, everything would get worse. So that's maybe, it's about where we are, you see. We, we are challenged and we try to control and we find that our control just makes things worse and that the only way to evolve is if you care, if you give, let those other free wills be who they are, and interact with them in a positive way. So if you think about it, uh, in ancient times, we have lots of uh, descriptions of 
Well, in those days, of course, they called the larger consciousness system God because that was their concept, or at least that's how we translated whatever language it was they wrote it down in. We translated it as that. What they thought, nobody knows, but uh, that's how the translation went. So as you recall, um, there were the gods tended to be uh, uh, violent. They tended to be demanding. They tended to... Uh, have all the same kind of fear and ego that, that we tend to show. And at first, I thought that uh, that was probably men creating God in their own image. Men were full of fear and ego. Therefore, the gods they created in their own mind were also full of fear and ego. But then I realized, and this wasn't really all that long ago, something brought it up and uh, I had another one of those aha moments. I realized that the larger system had to grow up as well. You don't. You start this game as potential. The larger conscious system was just potential, and what that potential becomes requires that potential to, you know, to grow, to evolve, to become more. It doesn't start done. It starts as potential. So in its process of realizing that the best way to deal with all those individuated units of consciousness was just to care for them, let them be, and uh, help out where you could, but no heavy-handed manipulation or, you know, uh, forcing things to be in your own, you know, the way you want them to be. So, yes, the system uh, is still evolving. And though it has learned those lessons, um, probably over many, 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 um, I don't know, you know, it doesn't have... Uh, centuries or millennia or things that we do, but over a very long time, it gradually learned that love is the answer. That's the only way that a social system can optimize itself. So yes, the system is not a perfect system, but the larger conscious system has evolved um, a whole lot more and for a whole lot longer than we have. So it's a lot further along on that path than we are, because just our inception is what caused it the challenge. You know, we were the challenge. And uh, it was much, much later that the system found a way for us to have direct experience. And that's by making VRs and letting us go and inner choices within, within VRs. So this is a, a slow process uh, without the VR. So, yeah, that, that uh, is true. We'll... Let's go ahead with number two then. Okay, thanks for that, Tom. Um, is ego then fundamental to consciousness in the same way that free will is? Uh, no, it's not so much that it's fundamental to it. It's something we can get rid of. Ego and fear, belief, we can get rid of those things. They're not fun. Something fundamental is just there. It's the bedrock. You know, it, it just stays there. Fear's not like that. Fear is one of the things that we can do with our potential. We have the potential to be, to make choices, to have feelings, to interact. And we have the potential to be fearful. We have the, tens the potential to be loving. And we uh, exercise that potential based on the quality of our consciousness. So it's, it seems, in a sense, to be fundamental since it's like everybody has their share of, of fear. You know, it seems like a fundamental thing, but not really. It's it's the thing we're trying to dispose of. It's the thing we have to outgrow. So no, not fundamental. 
Not like free will at all. Free will is just fundamental. We just have it. There's no way to get rid of it. <laughs> there's, there's no way to uh, exist here without it. Okay, so that um, brings me to my third question, um, which is, if the three words ego, fear, and love didn't exist, what other three words could we use in their place? Well, let's see. This is a exercise in picking good synonyms. Um, well, fear is the basic force that we have. Um, I don't know. I guess we could replace fear with uh, negativity and self-centeredness. That might be a um, a good guess, although that's two words for one. Um, Ego is a is a product of fear. Fear creates the ego, and that in, that indeed could be talked. I have an, a definition for ego, and ego is awareness in the service of fear. So, given that we just did fear, then ego is awareness in the service of fear. So, when that awareness is is um, trying to whitewash that fear, pretend it isn't there, or justify it, then that's what the ego does, and Love, then we could define as the absence of fear. So, I guess once you define fear, the others kind of uh, kind of fall out of that. So, um, love and fear are like two opposites. So, when you get what uh, when you get rid of one, you're left with the other. So, um, yeah, so saying love is the absence of fear is, is doesn't uh, sound very uh, very. Full doesn't sound like that's a complete definition. It's a. It's probably more than that. It's about other. It's not just getting rid of fear. It's about reaching out and interacting and caring about other. So it's a little more. So maybe we could say that it's about caring, cooperation, giving, as opposed to getting. So does that does that help? Yeah, that's really good. Really good, Tom. Thank you. All right, thank you. Um, Amber, if you'd like to ask your questions, since you're a new member, thanks for being here. Well, I think, Amber, Amber, we don't have any audio from you. I see you're unmuted, so you are unmuted, but we still don't hear anything from you. My headset was muted. Thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. all. <laughs> here we go. So I'm just reading my questions, um, and I'm asking a question about compassion first. Can you discuss what true compassion is, how it feels and is expressed from your perspective? It seems in our struggle with our ego, we often misidentify misinterpret and misunderstand love and compassion in ourselves what advice or discussion can you offer in discerning love and compassion within ourselves versus self-centered fear okay i guess compassion uh, can be defined as caring when you really do care about other people other people are important to you the state of those other people, um, the, the joy and pain of those other people uh, is important to you. So caring for others is really uh, kind of the, the bedrock of compassion. When you feel compassion, 
it's not that you want to go out and help everybody do the things they have to do. It's not that you want to save everyone from their own, you know, bad experiences. That would be overdoing. That's one of the things maybe that we get confused about. The compassion would be going out and, and uh, you know, feeding the poor or, you know, whatever, helping the homeless get the shelter. And that could be done out of compassion or that could be done out of uh, the intellect. We think that would be a good thing to do, so we do it. That would not be compassion. That would be our intellect trying to, uh, um, you know, make us act the way we think we ought to act. So compassion is really caring about others. It's just that simple. And love and compassion are a, are a set. They both have to do with caring about others. Love is about other, and uh, it's about other in the sense of caring about that other. That other becomes important and significant. And you get that compassion when you begin to realize that we are really all one thing. We all are together in this in this uh, adventure here in this physical universe. And when you see us all as together, then we tend to look more like, you know, brothers and sisters and, and uh, you know, friends than we look like enemies and competitors. So it's that, it's that idea of, of seeing us all as, you know, in the same boat, if you will. Everybody's here trying to do the best they can with what they've got. We're trying to get rid of that fear. We're trying to become love. We're dealing with challenges. We have hard things to deal with. We have uh, joyous things to deal with. And the compassion means that you connect to all of that. You are part of those people. You and they are not separate. I'm over here and you're over there and we're just different. We're connected. So I think that's the, that's the core idea with love and, and compassion. And yes, we do get confused sometimes when, when our intellect confuses passion, which is a state of being. It's, a, it's the way you feel. It's the way you are with good deeds, which may look like compassion, but they're being driven by the intellect. They can be driven by the intellect. Good deeds can be driven by love and passion, compassion. But uh, that's the confusion, I think. We often confuse our being level with our intellectual level, and we're not quite sure which, which one is driving us often. Thank you, Tom. Um, that does answer the question. And I have another one about primal man, primal woman. It's a bit long. I'll just read it. Um, what do you hope to achieve with your book, Primal Man, Primal Woman? Do you think your audience and or the world is ready for the book? It seems we, we do certainly need it. What are your worries or apprehensions, if any, at this time about the project, its message, and possible interpretation of the material? MBT is structured in such a way that it is humbling. It's written in a way to strip away belief and expectation. Are you taking that into account or structuring this book in the same way, changing changing the way women and um, men relate to one another is key in evolving towards love. What have been the biggest challenges in writing this work? Are you waiting intentionally for the right time to finish? Well, Amber, you must be channeling me. Uh, <laughs> most of the 
most of the uh, answers to that are yes, 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 and yes. There was a whole bunch of questions in there, and I think they're all yes. Um, yeah, there's there's several reasons why it's coming along very slowly, and one of those is, of course, time. When you write a book, at least when I write books, I can't do it like in 10-minute and 15-minute intervals between other things. I have to have blocks of time where I can sit down and spend, you know, two or three days, you know, working on things without much interruption. And my life just doesn't support that right now. I have, uh, I'm trying to do too much and don't have enough time to do it in. So that needs to change. But I think that's not all of it. That's maybe more of an excuse than it is a fact, even though it, it is indeed a fact. You're right. Um, timing, as they say, is everything. You need to get the timing right. Um, as an example, if our, if our world were composed 99% of, um, you know, rabid uh, religious fundamentalists, it would not have been a good time to write MBT and put it out there. Uh, you need to have a fairly large selection of open-minded people who can think out of the box in order to succeed with that kind of a book. Otherwise, it uh, you know would just flop. And the the beliefs that we have now uh, about gender in our culture and pretty much all cultures. Uh, around the world, not necessarily all cultures, but a large part of the cultures around the world, there's such belief and such um, strength and energy and and uh, emotion into that belief that it's probably not a good time to uh, release something that challenges that belief. Although I see things changing, I see it moving the other way. I see it, uh, you know, that belief lightening up a bit over the past several years. So I'm planning on, I don't know, within the next next year or so to start working on that book again, along with a couple of other projects that I have going as well. I believe by the time I get it done now, it will be the right time. And I pretty much let, um, you know, I pretty much let my intuition tell me when it's the right time. If it's not the right time, then it just doesn't quite feel right. And when it is the right time, then, you know, everything gets out of the way and and uh, my desk clears and I can just work on it. So it's not quite the right time yet, but it's getting closer. So I do think I will get it out. <laughs> I don't think it'll be forever or not make it at all. But uh, hopefully when I do get it out, it'll be just in time to help uh, people see a bigger picture of gender and the reason I'm writing this book is because my you know my I should say my job here but uh, you know what I do is try to help people try to do things that are useful to people and understanding the larger reality was the first one that's a big thing we can't grow up unless we have this bigger picture of reality unless we see who we are and why we're here but the second biggest thing that I can think of that makes people miserable and upset and full of, um, you know, ego and stress is gender relationship, the male female, you know, dance. That is uh, a big stress causer and a big fear and ego 
um, source. So that's why I picked that as the second thing to write about. So I think it's a it's a, an important thing to do. I do aim on aim to finish it, but I'm not sure that this is just the right time yet. I think we have a little more maturing to go in that in that area before uh, we're ready for bigger change. Thank you, Tom. I do notice that everyone's kind of chomping at the bit to kind of get into this work and I feel the same way that maybe it's not the the right time. So I appreciate your um, candidness in answering that question. You're welcome. You know, I do have a, a very small piece of what I call the logical skeleton of this book on my website. If you go to the to the www.mbt.com, no, mybigtoe.com, excuse me, it's not MBT, www.mybigtoe.com, um, you will find a, 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 a um, pull-down menu that says um, downloads. And then from that downloads, you'll find another uh, link that'll take you to, um, I think it says uh, slides and gems. And then if you scroll down in that list, you'll find the primal man, primal woman. And it's about 20 pages. It's a partial outline, maybe 10% uh, of what the book's going to be about. But it's a part that I just wanted to start, write something down to create a focus uh, and kind of a, a wrapper, if you will, that uh, my ideas could float around in and to let it fly out there to see what other people, you know, the comments I get on it. So you can learn a little bit about it right there. Not much, but a taste anyway. And that's not really written like uh, like I would write a book. It's more of an outline. So it's not uh, it's not very good prose. It's just almost in bullet form, you know, line, you know, things to talk about, next thing, uh, if this and that, then this follows. So it's it's more in an outline form. But uh, not many people even know that exists. But so go take a look if you haven't uh, if you haven't found that yet. At least it'll give you an idea where it's where it might be going. All right. Well, Tom, uh, Vanessa has a couple questions on relationships that ties into this. Uh, one is on relationship. And John McKay has one that can follow up on that, too. So why don't you go in that order, Vanessa? Sure. Thanks, Donna. Yes. So, Tom, the, the basic understanding that I have of your philosophy towards relationships is that women just need to be honest and men basically just need to say yes to, you, um, to their women. <laughs> <laughs> And it's that simple. It sounds that simple. And when I share this philosophy with other men, some of them, they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. But I can feel that they're like, no way. I'm not just going to say yes to you. I'll be taken advantage of. And, and I can feel all that ego come up. So my question is, how realistic is this? And, and what is the percentage of men who are capable, who are evolved to this point, who have a big capacity of love, who can kind of follow this philosophy? All right. Uh, well, the thing you're referring to is uh, uh, when asked uh, about how they could kind of improve relationships, and I came up with a little scenario that basically was for two reasons. One, it would improve a relationship, but it would be a great um, 
exercise for getting rid of ego, particularly for the males. So this is an exercise in learning how to make it about other and not be so focused on self. So given that that's what the exercise is about, so let's let's have a an ego reduction exercise that also will improve your relationship. Okay, that's how we that's how I presented it initially, and I told the guys that their job in this relationship was to make their woman happy, and to try to do whatever that took to make her happy. Now, making her happy doesn't necessarily mean doing things that will hurt her in the long run. So the guy is in charge in this exercise. He has to decide what he has to do and how he's going to do it to make her happy. If she has to tell him what to do to make her happy, then it doesn't work. You see, he's already lost the bubble on that one. It's not that she, he says, well, what do you, what do you need? And, you know, then I'll do that. Now what, now what do you need? That isn't it. This is not for him to be her puppy dog. This is for him to take charge and make the choices that he thinks will make her happy. So if she has a need or a want or a, a thing, you know, that she needs and he can do that, it's something that is within his power to deliver, then go do it. Whether it makes sense to him or not isn't the issue. You see, if she has a want or a need or or a feeling or whatever, then don't want to, don't try to change it. Don't try to heal it. Don't try to criticize it. Don't try to take it apart and analyze it. Just make her feel happy. Make her feel better. Be there for what she needs when she needs it. Now, if the guys do this, obviously, they're going to have to let go of a lot of ego. They will have to learn to put somebody else in front of themselves. They'll have to learn not to always think, well, what's in it for me? What do I get? So it's a great tool for the guys to learn to let go of their ego. Now, what will typically happen here and why it's good for a relationship is that females are naturally relationship-centered. That's their thing is relationships. Guys are more outer world-centered. That's their thing. They do stuff out in that outer world. Females are very relationship-centered. So when they get treated in this way, when there's a guy who adores them and is trying to make them happy and give them everything that he can, they're going to respond to that by trying to be worthy of that sort of attention and that sort of status. They will not just say, oh, that feels good. Give me some more of it. Um, hmm, quick, fetch me something from the refrigerator. <laughs> you see, they're not going to do that because they're very relationship-centered. That's how they work. So if they feel that coming from their guy, they're going to find a way to deserve it. They're going to find a way to give it back, and the whole relationship will get a lot better. You see, so we've killed two birds here with this one stone. We've helped the guys reduce ego, and we've helped them create a wonderful relationship with their uh, with their lady. So that was the that was the exercise. Now it can work in the opposite way, and I've had some some uh, male that tells me that that it does work the opposite way, but you see, it takes longer. The female can do the same thing. She can just decide that. 
that she is just going to make her guy happy. Whatever he needs, you know, however he needs it, she is going to try to deliver that. And eventually, the guy will be aware that that is pretty special, and he better, you know, change his ways or do what he has to do to be deserving of that. He will, he will do the same sort of thing, except relationship is not his main thing. You see, and because it's not his main thing, it may take him a year to figure that out. You see, whereas the other way around, where the guy is trying to uh, make his lady happy, she'll probably figure that out in a month or less. A couple of months. It'll take a few months before she thinks it's real. She th before she thinks it's just not the intellect. You see, if the guy just does it from his intellect, well, now that's more of a manipulation than anything else. But if he's doing that really from his being level, and that's really what he feels, and he's really trying to do this and not just act a role, then he will grow up a whole lot, and it won't take that long before his lady will reciprocate. If she does this, uh, then he will reciprocate, but it may take a year or so before he gets to that point because guys aren't focused on relationship. It's not their mm -hmm. core thing. You know, we, we guys tend to stumble through relationship, uh, you know, only vaguely aware of what's going on. You know, we're very uh, intuitive in our relationship, and our intellect doesn't work in relationship at all. That's typical guy. Ladies are the other way around. Their relationship is their thing, and often the lady's problem is that her intellect rules her relationships because relationship is her main space, and she thinks about that a lot, and she tends then to interact in relationship from her intellect, not from her being level. That's, that's the downside, you see. Now, males have the, the outer world. That's their, that's their space, and they tend to interact with that with their intellect. Women, when they interact in that outer space, they're sort of like the men are in relationship. They kind of stumble through it, get by the best they can, don't feel all that comfortable in it, mainly work on their intuition, and, you know, stuff just, just happens, and uh, they, don't, uh, they don't really work at it so much with their intellect. So we are just different, we males and females, and we look at the world in a different way. So the way that's most efficient for everybody is if the guy takes the role of dropping his ego and from the being level, begins to put his lady first, that's, you know, that is uh, a good learning exercise for both of them. Plus, you end up with a good relationship. And I have had a hundred emails from guys who have done this, and all of them have said, wow, what a difference. Our relationship is so much better. It's really terrific. So, I've not got one yet that said, I tried this, and man, did I get taken advantage of. You see, mm -hmm. that's possible to happen. You might get taken advantage of. That's a possibility. But if that's what happens, then you probably ought to be looking for a different relationship. You see, that's probably not the best relationship for you. But that won't happen very often. That's not what happens. That's exactly what a woman wants in her life, is a guy who wants to take care of her. 
And when she feels that, she will try to feed that any way she can. She's not going to try to take advantage of it or abuse it. So the reason that these guy friends of yours say, eh, I don't know, that sounds pretty risky to me, you know, getting taken advantage of, that's their fear talking. You see, that's their ego. That's their, yeah, but what if I don't get what I want? What if I'm just given to her all the time and, and I, don't, I don't get all the things I want? Well, who's important there? They are important. It's all about them and what they want and their needs. And if you come from fear, then that seems like a very bad deal. If you can uh, not come from fear, then it seems like an interesting experiment to try and see how it works out. Okay. So it is quite realistic then that there are lots of men out there who want to give and they could about other. I think there probably are, but I believe that the way most of the guys that came to this who found it to be working beautifully are people who had been interested in MBT. They saw the nature of reality. They know that becoming love is really what we're supposed to do and that getting rid of the fear and the ego is a key thing. So they were anxious to try that as a, as a way of, of accomplishing that better. So that's like using your relationship to help grow up as a tool for growing up and get a better relationship out of it to boot. So they saw that and were very interested in it. Now, for a person who doesn't have that understanding, who doesn't realize that self-centeredness is not really, you know, a good way to be, then you probably have a harder sell there. So that's, you know, but again, if a guy is too self-centered, if he's too fearful to consider that, then he's probably not the kind of person you want in a relationship anyway. You see, yeah. so it all work. It all works out. It all works out because I actually I was dating a guy, the guy who introduced me to your work, and when I, and I showed him the interview that you had on Primordial Man, I'm like, look, this is how we're gonna make our relationship work. And he was like, whoa, babe, whoa, babe, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> and then I said to him, well, then I'll do it. I'll lead the way, and I'll love the crap out of you, and I'll make you happy. <laughs> and after two weeks, I was like, can't do this anymore. No, man, no, guys need to lead the way. And then I left. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, that kind of it leads me into my next question. So I loved your conversation that you had with Fouad, Fouad I think. And um, mm -hmm. in that conversation, you shared that all of your relationships have been open, and then that's a very beautiful, trusting way to go about relationships. Can you elaborate more on having an open relationship and what that means to you? It's very simple. Love is unconditional. If it's not unconditional, it's not love. So if your relationship is love and it's unconditional, that's the definition of open. So it's, you know, if it's really a relationship based on love, then it has to be an open relationship. You care about that other person. As soon as you say, all right, I'll do this for you, but, you know, here's what you have to return. It's no longer love. It's a deal now. It's a negotiation. So you, you do this for me, I'll do that for you. And relationships built on deals just don't have the, you know, what it takes to go in the long term for the most part. And when it does go in the long term, it's usually two people who just would rather uh, be friends than have to deal with, uh, you know, finding new significant others. So if it's, real, if it's love, it's really love, then it has to be an open relationship. 
whatever that person needs, whatever they feel like they have to do, whatever they need in order to grow and learn and experience, you need to support that because you love them, you see. And it's not like, well, I'll support this much of it, but, you know, these other things, no, that's off limits. You can't do that. Well, that's a conditional, you know, that's a, that's a conditional uh, relationship. That's not really love. Love is about other person. So when people think of um, an open relationship, that sounds very scary to them because they have fear that they won't get what they want or what they need or, you know, what they have will disappear or, you know, so they're thinking about all the things that would hurt them and, no, they don't, they're not going to allow any of that to happen. Well, that's all self-centered, self-focused, fearful, you know, attitude. It comes from a, a belief that if you don't control things, you know, they will bite you. You know, they will, they will turn bad if you don't control it. It's this idea we have to control everything to make it come out the way we want. If we don't control it, you know, it will turn out bad. That's a fearful approach. So that's what I meant when I said all good relationships are open because that's the way love is. Love is open. It's not closed. It doesn't have any conditions on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when my girlfriends heard you were in an open relationship, they were like, oh, <laughs> That's not what it open. That's not what open means. You see. Well, I guess in a way that is what open means. Yes, everybody's available. You have a life to live, and you need to grow along that that path. And if you have somebody that loves you, then they'll want you to take whatever path you think is the most productive path for your for your growth. You see. So it doesn't mean that you're out. Uh, you know, you're out searching for something else. It doesn't mean that you are. Uh, you know available in the sense of uh, looking for other relationships. It just means that your love is real love. It's, it's uh, donations. All right. I have a question from John McKay, and that is on relationships, following up on just what we were talking about. Does your book, Primal Man, Primal Woman, attempt to help people overcome fear, such as my partner is in this relationship for purely selfish reasons? And do you have any comment about what is happening in Hollywood at the moment? Well, I can't address that last question because I have no idea what's happening in Hollywood in this moment. But uh, I don't know what he would be referring to. I'm not one that ever watches news or TV or anything else, so I'm kind of unplugged from the uh, from the uh, pop culture. But anyway, yes, the, the 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 book that I'm writing, Primal Man, Primal Woman, does deal with fear uh, in within the terms of relationship because of you know the problems are the same everywhere the problems with relationships tend to be problems in fear um problems in misunderstanding problems not knowing who we are being afraid to be authentic being afraid to be who we are um those sorts of things so fear is a key part of it yes it does address uh those things. It would have to address those things or it wouldn't really address anything important. Right. Um, another question that John McKay has, why do people have allergies and allergic reactions? And uh, how can we use our intent to overcome these problems? Well, the things that happen to us that are, that are um, 
physical. Okay, we get ill, we get sick, we get allergies. These things have two fundamental sources. One is the rule set. Right, the rule set defines our biology. So the rule the rule set um, will determine how we, you know, how we interact when we get exposed to, you know. Uh, uh, some sort of sickness. So somebody has the flu and they sneeze in your face. Well, after that, it's a re, it's a uh, it's a problem of the rule set. What will your body do? How strong is your immune system? Um, all of that sort of thing. So that's the one one thread that's running through the illness and the uh, uh, things like allergies. The other thread is the mind leads and the body follows. So an intention can can help make that immune system much stronger. An intention can make the, pos the probability of getting that flu much smaller. So we have both those things happening. We have a rule set that just works out our biology as it, uh, you know, as it will, according to those rules. <clears throat> and we have an intent that can modify the probability of how that rule set works, how that rule set will operate, what it will do. So we can help our allergies with intent. Um, allergies can be um, odd things. You know, allergies are often telling us something about uh, what we need to do or what we need to not do. Um, sometimes an allergy will occur um, because of an experience that you've had. Um, for example, you know, someone. Uh, has the flu, but they haven't any symptoms of it yet. They're going to have symptoms in about 24 hours, but right now they have no symptoms, but the flu is, is let loose in their system. Well, they go out with, uh, with friends and they eat a, you know, a whole pizza and uh, they overeat some and they go home and within hours the flu hits them and they get very, very sick. Well, your system has hard wiring in it to keep you alive that when you eat something and then get sick afterward, you have an aversion to that thing. Now, those people may produce an aversion to pizza. They may just smell a pizza or see a pizza and start to feel nauseous. That's how strong their aversion is. And that is a thing that's kind of outside of their control. They even see a picture of a pizza. They may get nauseous. Um, that sort of thing happens. Uh, I never had allergies until I was trapped in a room at where I worked with a smoker, a chain smoker, and the room was very small, and there were four people stuck in this very small room, and one of them was a chain smoker. I had such a terrible sinus infection that it went into encephalitis, which the infection uh, kind of pops through the, the um, lining around the brain and, and affects the brain. And I was got so ill with that that afterwards, if I smelled smoke even downwind at 50 feet away, my body would immediately react. I'd start sneezing and uh, uh, had real strong allergy symptoms to that smoke. So you see, now my allergies got triggered by this this um, survival mechanism that's hardwired in us to avoid things that make you ill. But after that time, I was allergic to almost anything that I could smell. 
chemicals, uh, you know, perfumes, exhaust fumes, you name it. And my eyes would start to tear and burn and I would start to sneeze. So that's rule set business. Okay. That's the way the rule set works. But now you can modify that to some extent with your intent. You can intend that you're not going to let that bother you. You can intend that you're not going to sneeze this next time. And in fact, you can make it less severe. You can work yourself out of it with a strong, continuous intent. So that, you know, those two things uh, are kind of battling with each other, if you will, uh, the rule set and your intent. Now, if the rule set is hard over to create a certain effect, then your intent probably isn't going to do much, but maybe blunt it slightly. Because you see, using your intent to change probability depends how much probability you have to change. So if that rule set is, um, well, let's, let's get something very dramatic. If you break your arm, you're not going to take your intent and not have a broken arm when you wake up the next day. You see, that's something that the rule set just can't do. The probability of that happening is, you know, is one in a trillion. And no matter how strong your intent is, you're not going to change that probability distribution. So your intent is limited in what it can do to modify future probability. Some things it can do easily. Some things it's nearly impossible to do. And that depends on what the rule set is telling you about your biology. See what, what the biology is doing. So if you just have all this flu in you and it's just taking over your system and you're about to have symptoms, an intent that says, no, I don't think I'll have that now may not suffice. You may get it anyway, but you may get it less severely because of that intent. So those are the two things, John, that, uh, that uh, are, are involved there. Rule set stuff just tells us, uh, you know, our limitations. For instance, we talk about the brain. Um, if you have brain damage because of an accident, now you maybe can't remember anything, or maybe uh, you know your right arm doesn't uh, work very well anymore. You've lost your coordination. Well, it's not that the brain is is doing this to you. It's that the brain, according to the rule set, sets constraints on what the avatar can do according to the rules. So now it says, oh, that that avatar got hit in the head in this accident, did brain damage, and now the constraints get raised on what that avatar can do. That avatar can no longer, uh, you know, have use of that hand and, uh, you know, remember things that are going on. That's because of the rule set setting constraints. All virtual realities work that way. The virtual reality has a rule set. The rule sets define what the avatars can do and can't do. Well, our rule set is our biology, our science, our chemistry. Those are pieces of our rule set. And they will put limitations on what the consciousness can do with that avatar, according to the way that rule set works. All right, Tom. Uh, a follow-up question that John asks is about using intent to modify future probability in a slightly different sense. When approaching a big transition in life, there's often stress and danger involved. How do we use our intent to modify future probability? 
Is it as simple as continuously focusing on the desired result? Well, um, no, it's not that simple. If you just are focusing intellectually, um, that's like making a wish. You know, and that's a very weak intent. It won't move much probability. It won't change much probability. But if you have a strong um, being level intent and also a willingness to deal positively with whatever comes, you know, I'm going to deal with whatever comes and I'm going to deal with it well, but it sure would be great if it worked out this way. And not just great for me, but great for other people. You know, it just kind of, it's the low entropy solution. That would be the best way that this thing could work out. So if you're willing, which means, you know, if when I say you're willing to accept whatever happens and work with it positively, that means you're not fearful about the outcome. Because if you are fearful about the outcome, then you will begin putting energy into that fearful outcome happening. So first, no fear about what's happening. You'll go into it, whatever it is, you'll deal with it, you'll learn from it, and you'll be better in the long run. You approach everything positively like that. But if you have a sense of what would be best for everybody, well, you can have a being level intent for that too, which will then raise the probability that it'll work out like that best for everybody. But if it's only an intent that this is what's best for me, it may be worse for everybody else, but this is the way I'd like it to come out, then that's an intent that's basically fear-based, and it's, you know, uh, probably not going to help you out as much. It's not as strong an intent. All right. Thank you, Tom. Another question from John. Um, 432 hertz music. From the 36 fireside chat, um, is 432 a better frequency for music than 440? Um, your answer was perfectly acceptable. Some frequencies are better for different effects, and it's unlikely that one frequency works best for everything. However, many musicians are searching for a definitive standard music frequency. Should we change from 440 to 432? Are there any listener comments or anything to add? Well, uh, John wrote me an email not that long ago, and I wrote one back to him that basically said, I really don't understand the question. I really don't understand the issue. Um, you know, 432, and it's listed down here as hertz. Um, that's a very specific frequency. Okay? And 432 hertz is... Um, uh, let's see, you have to divide that by 60 to get what the beats per minute is. That's probably a uh, low alpha beat if we take it into beats per minute. Okay. So if that really is beats per minute and not hertz. But I just don't understand the question, really. I don't know what the 432 is about and uh, what the uh, what the issues are. It's, I just don't know anything about it, so I can't answer it. I need some more information. I need, he's got some websites here, but obviously I can't do that now. But when I, after I look at the websites and I get some context of what's going on, I will probably have uh, something to say about it. I usually have something to say about almost everything, but I don't really understand it until I get some more information. Okay, Tom, thank you. That's fair. Um, 
Buddha's question um, on entities. I've heard you talk about entities before, both positive and negative. What are they? Are they consciousness living in another VR that came in to visit us here? Or are they other types of players meant to be in our VR? And that's virtual reality. Are there things we don't see that live right here? I've heard so much about people being possessed and I felt presences that I couldn't explain. How much of that is our own negativity? And how much of it is other beings? What is the extent of their power? Can they really possess you? There's a few questions in here. Also, if I wanted to speak with positive entities, how could I go about it? And where would they be coming from? Okay, first um, question I believe was, uh, what are they, the, these entities, positive and negative? Most of the time, they are, um, well, <clears throat> I don't know if I can say that. Many, many times, let's put it this way, they are your own fear. Um, sometimes they are the larger consciousness system trying to help you out, give you some information or give you an attitude or feeling, you know, your intuition, if you will. Um, it's possible that they could be, you know, when you talk about beings and feeling a, a presence, it's possible they could be just some other individuated unit of consciousness. It depends on how you perceive them. You see, we, we tend to pattern match. When we get a, some data, if it's data that is communicating to us or giving us feelings or messages, we tend to immediately interpret that as a being. That's a being because, you know, rocks don't talk to us. Uh, so if something talks to us now, we have a being. Well, that may be the larger conscious system sending you a message. It may be some other consciousness. All of us are netted. All consciousness is netted together. So there may be some dear friend of yours who's thinking about you, and you will suddenly kind of feel that presence, and that person will come to mind. That's the connections that we have, uh, consciousness to consciousness. So it could be that. So there's lots of different things it could be. Many times, it's just your own fear, particularly if it's negative. If you have a negative, I, ha I have people uh, write to me fairly often about how they seem to have a negative entity attached to them doing some awful thing. It, you know, they, they itch or their hair stands up or it uh, feels like bugs are under their skin or on and on and on, lots of different sensations and feelings, and they can't sleep. And um, they feel that some negative entity is just giving them a hard time and messing with them. For the most part, uh, that isn't the case. For the most part, it's their own fear. They are creating that because of their fear, because... We don't want to find the things, we don't want to face the things that are inside of us that, that frighten us, that scare us, that are our fears. We would rather externalize those and then deal with them as an external thing. That's the same reason why uh, we say, oh, you make me angry, rather than I choose to be angry, because we don't want to deal with the fact that we choose to be angry, so we blame it on somebody else. We externalize it, make it outside of us, and then we can blame that thing that's outside of us. 
So most of the time, that's what's going on. It's a fear that has become obsessive. And what happens is it starts small. Just a little thing happens. But you have this fear. And then you get this uh, you know, funny, creepy, crawly feeling goes up and down your neck. And then you associate, oh, that might have something to do with the fear. So now your fear is stronger because you've gotten a, you've got an externalization of that fear, which then makes you more afraid. And the next time it's, it's, it's a stronger sensation, which gives you even more fear. And you can see how it just is a, a negative spiral that eventually you're so wound up with this fear and the, and the sensations that you're getting that it's debilitating. It's um, you know it's hard for you to go to school. It's hard for you to go to work. Uh, it tends to take over your day, and you feel possessed. You feel um, that negative entities are are uh, ruining your life. Now, it is possible that negative energy can be sent to you. Um, you know, when you heal someone, you send them positive energy, and you help them get over a, a sickness or an illness. That's just the way energy works. It's just the way intent works. You know, I call it energy because that's a metaphor that we all understand, but that's the way intent works. So you can just as easily send them something that makes them nauseous or gives them a headache as you can take that nausea away or take away their headache. So others' thoughts can affect us. Mostly, though, like I say, it's a, it's a, a downward spiral, kind of a tailspin of our own fears that cause these these sorts of things. Um, feeling presence that you can't explain, that could be almost anything. Uh, it could be the larger consciousness system giving you something that's uh, reassuring, like uh, your, uh, you know, your mother dies, and then for the next couple of months, you feel her presence around you. You see, that's feeling a presence. So that's just something that the system would give to you. Or perhaps uh, it's her own energy that is uh, trying to give you a sense of I'm okay. So it could be that. Um, the presence could be your own imagination. That's a possibility. Um, it could be a um, manifestation of fear, like you are out all alone at night on a dark street in a not very good neighborhood and suddenly you feel watched. You feel, you know, that there's somebody uh, going to get you. Well, there may actually be somebody who's watching you is going to get you, or it may just be your fear that that might happen, and then that fear creating that feeling that it is happening. So these things can, can take place for lots of reasons. Um, if they are intuitive, then... You know, those those feelings, you should pay attention to them. You know, if, if you're walking in that alone place, well, it's time to get indoors. You know, it's time to, you know, turn into that uh, supermarket and spend some time there. It's time to call up somebody to come pick you up. Uh, pay attention to them. Um, but if it's your fear, then you're just scaring yourself. You are working yourself up into uh, a, uh, you know, a state of fright that gets worse the more you think about it. So you're overthinking it. So how do you know the difference? Well, it's hard to know the difference, and the best way to know the difference is to get rid of your fear because then when you don't have any fear, 
you know whenever you get those feelings, it's your intuition trying to help you out and tell you something. You know, it's good information and you should pay attention to it. So you you tell the difference by eliminating those fears. Otherwise, data is data. You see, whether you make it up, whether it comes from outside of you, whether it's from the LCS, it's just data and you interpret it. And there's no tag on that data as where it comes from. It could be your imagination or it could be something else besides your imagination. And you can't tell unless you have gotten rid of your fears to the point that you know what those things are. They're always the same thing. It's help on its way. It's encouragement. It's that stuff. It's that voice that says, you can do it. Just keep going. You see? So it's not an easy answer to your question. It could be all sorts of things. Depends on the person and the situation. But a whole lot of that possession thing and evil entities, uh, you know, annoying you and bad luck that won't go away, most of that is self-created. It's not really other entities doing that. Occasionally, that's the case. Occasionally, there's somebody who is on purpose, intentionally trying to give you a problem. But that doesn't happen in our culture very often. So that's not the main thing. Now, if you happen to be uh, a native of uh, East Coast or West Coast in Africa, and you're telling me these things, then I would, you know, probably look at it a little differently because there you do have a culture where people doing negative things to you is something that happens a lot or at least happens a lot in the margins. So that would be a little different. So it's not impossible. It's just unlikely, particularly here. It just doesn't happen that much. The last thing I should tell you about this is if there are negative influences coming your way and maybe it's just because there's a bunch of people who just really don't like you and they sit around you know thinking really negative thoughts about you all the time and you feel that right well you can do something about that you can turn it off the only connection that they have to you is your fear you see if you don't have the fear if you don't think all oh, those people they really don't like me you know i can feel that that negative energy from them that's your fear. You fear that they are going to hurt you or affect you or annoy you or something and you don't like it and there's a negative feeling that you have. Well, then your negative feeling connects with their negative feeling and you get the message. You get that feeling. It does come right through to you. But if you don't have that negative feeling, if you don't have any fear invested in it, if you just say, hey, that's them. You know, they can sit around and stew all they like. doesn't have anything to do with me. Then... It won't touch you. All of that negative stuff will just slide right by and won't touch you. So when you do have negative things coming your way, you can avoid it just by not connecting to it. And fear is the way we usually connect to things like that. So yes, other consciousness can send messages to you or feelings to you or can give you a headache or or take away your headache but if you have no fear there's very little they can do to touch you with any information with any energy it's very little that they can do with you that's why you take these cultures that i'm talking about in coastal africa where there's there are those 
negative beings who have learned to use their intent to hurt other people and extort money from them. You know, give me money or I will do this to you, sort of thing. But those people that come into that culture that don't pay any attention to that and say, oh, that's a bunch of nonsense, so that they really don't have any fear about it, well, it really doesn't work on them because they don't have any way to connect to that person. That's why in those regions, the, the you know, whatever, they all have their own names, but uh, from Haiti, you know, the voodoo person first has to scare you. Otherwise, they can't attack you. They can't do anything to you. That's why you send you the little doll with the pin in it. That's why they have to, you know, do some kind of act where they, uh, you know, going to cast a spell and do this and do that and tell you all the horrible things that are going to happen. That is what they do in the beginning in order to create fear. So now once they've created the fear, then their intent can connect to you. So that's the that's kind of the strategy. If those people have no fear, then they can't connect to them. They can't really impart that energy. All right, Tom. Um, because it has a little bit to do with what you've just talked about, um, Hutta's next question is on different virtual realities. I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. In the book Autobiography of a Yogi, Yogananda talks about different levels of what you call virtual realities. Um, he said planet level, uh, level virtual reality. And he talks about different ones, uh, astral levels, elemental levels, um, and the things that people often interpret as heaven and hell. Um, do you agree with um, this type of analogy? Can you talk about these levels? Have you seen them? And she definitely wants to know, are there some levels where there are fairies and mermaids existing? <laughs> okay. Um, well, the short answer to, um, um, you know, do I agree with that is no. I don't agree with that. Um, these levels are not fundamental. Okay, these levels are tools. They're, they're ways of sorting and categorizing information that makes it easier to talk about. Um, so, in the uh, Hindu theology, you have various levels of things. You have the the base level, which is physical, that's the coarsest, the grossest, the, the lowest level. And then you have above that, you have a um, an etheric body, like a health body. And then above that, you have the astral body. And above that, you have the, I think, mental body. And above that, you have a spiritual body. So they have lots of, of levels and ways of sorting and categorizing things to make it easier to have a conversation about it. That way people can talk about these things individually and, and it makes it, you know, a communication simpler. Just like the chakras. You know, in that same in that same Hindu theology you have chakras. And the chakras have different attributes and control different sorts of energies and so on, and you have seven of those. And again, these are not fundamental. These are tools. They're ways of of looking at it. They're models, if you will, ways of looking at this information and shouldn't be taken literally. 
Now, many Hindus and other people do take them literally. And that's okay. There's not a problem there. It's, it's a tool. But um, they're not fundamental things. And so these other levels aren't either. Um, for instance, when you see auras, uh, I have learned, you know, when I first started to see auras, that, I don't know, it was like 40 years ago, I guess. I experimented with it and realized that what I saw was like the default format for the data, that I could see an aura that was a picture of whatever it is I wanted to be a picture of. It didn't have to be the astral, the etheric, you know, the mental, that sort of thing. I could make up my own things, and it would work just as well. That was just a <clears throat> kind of the default data output. So if I wanted to look at somebody's emotions, I would just say, I want to see these emotions, and here's the color scheme I'd like to see them in. So I could define what colors meant what, and that's the way I'd get the data. Or if I wanted to see their uh, spiritual quality, I could get a, I could get a picture, and uh, it would show me just their spiritual quality. Or whatever. I could make up any category I wanted, and I realized that, People a long time ago, when they made these things up, did just that. They had certain things they were interested in. And one was health, and that ended up being called the etheric body. And one was emotion, and one was spirituality, and so on. Um, so that's why we get these different levels and these different bodies. And it's not, you know, it, it's not something that uh, has to be that way. It's just the way it is. It's the form that's been taken. Everybody kind of agreed to it in the Hindu theology, and now it's kind of a fact of their, of their life. And these tools are useful, but not necessary. So no, those, I, don't, uh, I don't find levels like that. There is no, uh, you know, there is no hell, and, it, and we're not living in it. You know, that's not what we're here for you know this is not a place of punishment this is uh, a place of learning so now let's get to the fairies and the mermaids there uh, there are other reality frames like our like our universe we have a physical universe that's a virtual reality there are other virtual realities other places that have other kinds of creatures in them that don't live here that that uh, inhabit these realities they evolved often under a similar rule set, but they just evolved differently because the environment that they were evolving in was different. And you can find lots and lots of different strange things. I don't know that any of them I've seen I would call fairies and mermaids, but I don't know why not. That the, uh, you know, Those sorts of things wouldn't exist someplace. But I think uh, you know, those, are, those are myths here. But other reality frames, hard to say. Hard to say what might be uh, in other places. I'm sure I haven't been to every one that's possible. And though I've never seen fairies and mermaids, I've seen some very strange things. So probably, yes, fairies and mermaids probably exist somewhere. But uh, if not anywhere else, they do in our minds and in our imaginations. And that can make them fairly real, you see, because you're... Your imagination is really a very powerful tool. That's an information source. And information is real. 
reality doesn't get any more real than information. This physical universe is just information. So when you uh, have a a um, a daydream or a night dream and it has mermaids and uh, fairies in it, then uh, that's your interpretation. That's your reality. And it's not that that's not real. It's just a different place, a different reality frame, one of maybe your own creation, but it's just as real as others.